0: Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. This podcast is recognized for the diverse discussions that we have with warfighters and senior leaders from around the world. Today's episode continues that trend with our guest, Group Captain Matthew McCormick, a highly qualified fighter pilot and senior leader with the Royal Australian Air Force. Our topic today is the Australian-led, multinational large-force employment exercise called Pitch Black. Group Captain McCormick is the exercise director of this year's exercise, which is the Royal Australian Air Force's most significant international engagement activity, with forces participating from a wide range of partner and allied nations across the globe. Pitch Black is a biennial exercise. This year, it took place between August 19th and September 8th, and it hosted over 2,000 personnel and over 80 aircraft. The exercise included day and night flying, with each mission executed as a standalone serial with distinct training objectives. Through Exercise Pitch Black, the Royal Australian Air Force demonstrates its commitment to building professionalism and enhancing military relationships for the safe and effective conduct of air operations. The training and integration that occurred during the exercise recognizes the high value that Australia places on fostering closer ties through multinational interoperability, particularly in the Indo-Pacific region. It's one of the largest air combat exercises in the Southern Hemisphere, so our conversation delves into what happened this year, and we also discuss some of the complexities of training for air warfare in the modern age. I hope you enjoy it. Let's cue the music. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. And today I'm very happy to have on the podcast, straight from Australia, Group Captain Matthew McCormick. We've had some connectivity issues, but hopefully that's all resolved now. And uh, Mac, it's, uh, it's great to have you here. It's good to be
1: here, Jody. Good to chat
0: with you. Thank you so much for taking the time for me, sir. I really appreciate it. Um, Mac, as I do with all of my guests, I start out by asking what made you join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did?
1: Uh, I, was, I guess I was influenced as a child. My father was in the Australian Air Force. Um, I sort of bucked against that for a few years, but when I got to the latter years of high school, um, it became more attractive to me. Uh, I can't say I was always wanting to be a fighter pilot. Um, Top Gun version 1. Did have some sort of influence uh, whilst I was at high school, um, but to be fair, I actually wanted to fly F-111s uh, at school, uh, and I now explain that away as I just didn't know any better. <laughs> uh, fortunately for myself, joined the air force and got to fly F-18s, um, which I think is a better career choice uh, and a much more dynamic role that the F-18 did play for Australia. Um, but that's, I guess, that was the, the primary influence was uh, my family as a child.
0: Yeah, right on. Uh, what what did your dad do in the Air Force?
1: Uh, he was a pilot as well. Flew a range of aircraft from starting at the Vampire and ending on the F-111, so he'd been in a while.
0: Oh, nice. Well, you know, the F-111, I've seen so many pictures of uh, the Australian Air Force dumping fuel and, and lighting it up on a pass, and I don't know, that just looks super cool.
1: So if there's one thing the F-111 could do, it was a good air show. I'll leave it at that. About
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's for sure. Um, so your career, as you mentioned, you've flown the F-18. Um, did you ever, uh, well, the Royal Australian Air Force now operates the Super Hornet and also the Growler. Um, have you flown either of those?
1: No, I have not. Um, so I was, assigned to fly the Classic Hornet, which is basically the same as the Canadians operate. Uh, Did three years in Cold Lake, Alberta, working with 410 Squadron out there um, on the Classic Hornet. Uh, And then I was fortunate enough that in the transition from all Classic Hornet to a mixed fleet of Supers and Classics I was fortunate to stay on the Classic which was my gateway to F-35 um, which uh, is a pleasure to operate uh, well and above what the Super Hornet could offer
0: oh right on okay uh, alright so there's a couple of things there I'd like to just pull at um, first of all how would you describe the difference of flying for the Royal Australian Air Force and your exchange time uh, flying with the Royal Canadian Air Force
1: oh uh, very similar. We are sister nations uh, to a T, so um, I guess the remote nature of the work at Cold Lake, Alberta was um, very similar to the remote uh, station we have here in the northern, uh, northern parts of Australia in the Northern Territory uh, at RAF Base Tyndall. The sense of humour of your defence personnel, uh, very similar. We've got the same sense of humour. We're interested by the same sort of things. It was was not too much different from being in Australia. Um, You guys just have an accent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Touche. Well done. That's awesome. I love it. Um, Okay, and then you got to tell me now what has it been like to transition over to the F-35 because that is the weapon system that um, virtually every nation that's had a competition has adopted the F-35 as their next generation fighter. Um, For those that might not be familiar, how would you coin the difference from what your experience is and and what you know in the Legacy Hornet and going over to an F-35? Uh, Yeah, I did
1: the transition course uh, start of um, 21 Mm -hmm. um, here in Australia, and the the, the jet itself, uh, apart from a side stick, handles very much the same as a classic Hornet. Um, you know, it feels the same. It's just a little slicker, so it doesn't slow down as much. The Classic Hornet was uh, the world's slowest fighter. Like, it slowed down real well. Um, it didn't meet a knot. It couldn't bleed. Um, but the, the F-35 is very slicker, uh, so it's actually um, a little bit of a handful to make sure you don't exceed your speed limits. You know, uh, going supersonic downhill is real easy, okay. which you don't want to do over populated areas. Uh, so that's that's a slight difference. I think the the major difference, which is where the joy of flying this aircraft comes from, is um, the fifth generation components of it, which I, I don't think is well understood at the moment because uh, I haven't seen it explained super well from anyone uh, what it's like. But you know, everyone sees the F-35, and it's the low observable characteristics, the shape and the surface that everyone's everyone can plainly see, and that, that's just one element of it. The thing that makes it such a um, a very good weapon system is the integration of the five main sensors on board the jet uh, that are fused to provide as confident a picture as possible, uh, without the pilot having to do the correlation of data uh, to improve the identification of any entities uh, surrounding it. Uh, that then the pilot can make a tactical decision uh, from that position. So. Legacy, you used to have to, in your mind, fuse a lot of the disparate information together from the federated system, but with an integrated system through fusion, uh, a lot of that legwork is taken away from the pilot, and the pilot can sit back and try and focus on optimising the tactical outcomes from the information that's been presented to them.
0: That's really interesting because um, obviously the the machine is doing all this sensor fusion, and I guess that's from onboard sensors, offboard sensors. Um, but can you be presented with too much information?
1: Me personally, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so you, you have the ability in the uh, the way you manage your displays to limit the amount of information that you see based on. Um, you know, the <laughs> confusion or otherwise that you may be experiencing. And it's, it's very friendly. The human machine interface is, is pretty good. It's not the same, but mm-hmm. that's okay. Uh, it doesn't mean it's wrong. Uh, that, so there are options to limit the information that is being provided to you. Uh, obviously, the more competent you are, and the, the greater your ability to be displayed, a greater level of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's what training's all about. So,
0: yeah, and it, you know, unless you're actually in combat, everything revolves around training, and that's why training is so important. Um, which is a perfect segue over to exercise pitch black. Um so my understanding is that Pitch Black was not run the last planned time that it was scheduled for uh, due to the COVID pandemic. So it's been 4 years I believe since the last Pitch Black. Um tell me a little bit about the exercise itself. What is the focus and the goal of the exercise? But also, how did a 4 year gap affect the exercise like did it give you more time to prepare and more time to plan out the way that you want to execute pitch black 2022 or did it just delay things one cycle
1: yeah so there's a couple questions in there joe so the the purpose of pitch black i guess over the years we've been been running an activity called pitch black since 81 uh, 1981 Mm -hmm. um and the, the purpose of it uh, changes from year to year, depending on where the focus of the Australian Air Force is. Um, you know, originally it was Australian Air Force only. Uh, we had the United States Air Force uh, play with us in 1983. Sorry, it's, it's, we operated every two years. Um, and then it, it sort of morphs and changed. We had the Singaporean Air Force come aboard in 19, in the 90s. Uh, and then the numbers of participants have been increasing rapidly. And I think, I think the... You know, the strategic objectives for Australia out of pitch black is to learn how to operate more efficiently with partner nations around the world, whoever they may be and whoever's participating at any particular activity. So that's the larger strategic picture to understand how we can optimise uh, operating with our close partners. Uh, but then uh, at a more tactical level, we're trying to ensure that we understand and uh, how other, fighter air combat communities work so that we can improve our the way we operate and learn lessons from others and you know i think one of the i was speaking to a senior uh, royal air force member at pitch black actually and he he coined the phrase he said to me he said the purpose of a first world air force is to assist those uh, uh less well-off in the air combat environment to be better at their jobs because it assists us if we need them Uh, So it it provides an opportunity for many of the regional countries, for sure, not to mention the European ones, uh, to actually operate in a large-force employment, which is when you put lots of jets in the sky doing the same thing at the same time, because that's difficult to achieve. Uh, It takes a lot of coordination uh, and a lot of... um, I guess, focused attention at where the priorities lie so that the aircrew at all levels can experience uh, more complex environments than they could otherwise generate themselves. Uh, You know, so as an example, the Singaporeans come every two years to pitch black because for their Singapore-based fighter pilots, uh, this is the only LFE activity that they participate in uh, in the region. So they go to the US and participate in... uh, uh, large force employment activities like Red Flag, but this one's a little bit closer to home for them, so they get a lot of benefit out of it and, and you know, that's representative of most of the participant nations that are there, it's, it's that um, putting a lot of jets together in the same spot, in the same piece of sky at the same time, and A, not hitting each other, but being able to achieve the tactical uh, mission objectives uh, is learning for everyone because we upskill everyone that's participating. Uh, And that that sort of focus, it's ebbed and flowed over the years, so sometimes we have a larger presence of a tactical airlift, uh, say C-130s or C-27s, that are involved. They can be incorporated in the air combat scenario. Uh, We purposefully took Pitch Black 22 to not include very much of that and primarily focus on the uh, air combat uh, fast jet type Uh, mission sets, uh, because we hadn't done it for a while. Uh, The COVID break there did mean that a whole bunch of nations missed the opportunity, but, you know, it's beyond everyone's control, and that's okay. Uh, But but that was the focus of this iteration of Pitch Black, and we are yet to determine. We don't have a... So, to your question of whether it gave us more time to prepare, uh, (laughs) we we love a just-in-time sort of concept in Australia, uh, whereby the people that were coordinating organizing and running pitch black that's not their full-time job uh they have normal day jobs and then they are tasked additionally to execute pitch black so uh, the team that were pulled together at graduating levels didn't start working on this until probably 12 months out from the activity and the closer we got to uh august of this year uh, that more people became more involved uh, And now that we have completed exercise pitch black, after all the post-activity reports have been completed and the lessons have been identified and passed up the chain to the Australian Air Command, we've all gone back to our day jobs.
0: Right, right. Okay, Uh, really interesting. So there's a few things here that I'm I'm very curious about. One is the footprint of exercise pitch black because... um, You flew up at Canadian Forces Base Coal Lake, and you know that that's a large expanse of of, uh, territory that you can fly in. Um, And I suspect that that is one of... Actually, I've heard uh, that that's one of the benefits of some of the operating areas that you have in Australia is that you have wide expanses of range space where you can fly. Um, Is that correct? And what bases were you guys operating out of? Yeah,
1: if there's one thing Australia's got towards the advantage of its size um equivalent in size I guess to the land mass of the United States of America I guess Uh, we're just in the southern hemisphere so no one notices um The reason we fly it up out of Darwin is that you know the, the time of year that the exercise is conducted is it's in the tropical region so it's known as the dry season up at that point in time so brilliant blue skies uh, no issues with any impacts of weather which uh, makes it easier to conduct and doesn't constrain the number of fighters that we put up in the airspace all at one time uh, the airspace up there because the population density is so low that were able to operate in large swathes of airspace at supersonic without uh, disturbing uh, the local population. So the, the size of the fighting airspace that we were using for pitch black, which was all overland, just to the south of Darwin, which is at the central northern point in Australia, mm-hmm. Was about 240 miles by about 240 miles. So that's um, sufficient enough that we can all stretch our wings and we can get um, suitable concurrent uh, tactical objectives achieved uh, in as short a period of time as possible. Um, and it's relatively close, so it's not long transits involved for the majority of aircraft. Uh, and if there's one thing fighters are well known for, it's uh, not having great legs. So most of the fighters were operating out of Darwin, uh, closer airfield to the fighting airspace. Base was a permanent raft-based Tyndall, um, which is right on the doorstep of the fighting airspace. So those are the two main operating bases for the fighters. However, we did have uh, a number of tanker support aircraft operating from ambly on the east coast, and that... Uh, is a significant distance uh, to embark on, so that's approximately 1,500 nautical miles away from Darwin yeah. on the east coast of Australia, so we'd have tankers operate out of Ambly on um, the east coast, fly out to the tactical airspace, operate in the mission, and then return back to Ambley, Um They've got, they've got a kitchen on board as well, so it uh, reduces the burden on that team. Right, right. Uh, and then, as a side activity, uh, the Australian Air Force also stood up RAF Curtain, which is also in the top end, about 500 miles to the west of Darwin, uh, to which is a bare base for Australia, and we were going through the motions of establishing that and making it able to be operated from, and they had a, a small footprint of operations from there, but it was external to pitch black. So.
0: Okay. Interesting. Is that range space that you described, um, how adequate is that for fifth generation fighters? And the reason why I ask is my understanding of fifth gen is that you employ the aircraft differently from say a fourth or 4.5 gen aircraft where uh, perhaps spread out more, um, they're acting as nodes and if i have that correct does that not necessitate having larger airspaces to do representative training or or you know uh training as you you know train as you'd fight
1: yeah exactly you, know, it, it, you do operate the system differently to fortune um, the, the the area that you can cover with a fighting four ship uh, is uh, much greater than what you can from a fourth generation four ship Uh, So, you know, larger airspace uh, is uh, nice to have. Uh, In our everyday training, I guess, here in Australia, we have the luxury of having some large training areas that we're allowed to do that. Um, you know, there are some other nations around the globe that operate 5th Gen that don't have that luxury, but they're still achieving some training outcomes, so it's, it's nice to have. That is one of the, uh, I guess, allures of pitch black for a lot of the, uh, our close partner nations, uh, is that they can come down here and operate in a, in a large piece of airspace that's coordinated by someone else. and They can just go and uh, reap the benefits uh, for their pilot training.
0: Right, right, and I guess in that context, tell me a little bit if you don't mind, Mac, about the threats that would be represented. Like, was Pitch Black primarily air to air? I suspect it was. Were you doing much air to ground work with the aircraft, or was it all dissimilar air combat maneuvering, kind of a uh, an exercise?
1: Yeah, no, it was a it was a uh, an OCA or offensive counter air activity. With uh, strike and interdiction roles um, seamlessly included in that, so that uh, the activity was conducted dry, and by that I mean that no one was actually carrying live weapons. Uh, it's a great heavy weapons range, just like uh, Cod Lake is um, down in the Northern Territory, mm-hmm. uh, but no one was carrying live weapons, and that was the decision was made on purpose for a number of reasons. Uh, but it was a completely dry activity, but there, or there were many aircraft uh, looking to employ. Uh, simulated weapons to strike targets on the ground, whether they be pre-planned targets or dynamic targets or time-sensitive targets that pop up during the mission. Uh, So that was conducted whilst there is an adversary air threat that needs to be countered. So there was a combination of both air-to-air and air-to-surface going on concurrently, depending on the mission of the day. And the way we orchestrated the missions was to provide the visiting nations and ourselves the opportunity to progress crews through their their particular categorization scheme uh, where they can go and achieve an upgrade to uh, their own skill sets. We basically, there was a three-week activity, the first week was just getting used to flying around the Northern Territory and operating with different people in mm-hmm. smaller packages and then the final two weeks were the LFE portion where we almost did, not exactly, we almost did a rinse and repeat so we, there are a couple of strike missions uh, in uh, the first LFE week, uh, then there was some dedicated defensive counter air missions, which changed up the mission set at the end of the first week, and then we almost rinsed and repeat the second week to give opportunity for different elements of the teams to go through that upgrade process. We've, we have discovered over time that if it's a continual rolling scenario that increases complexity throughout the two weeks, you actually leave people behind in the fact that they don't get as many training opportunities as they need and that's why we do it for uh, upgrading of our crews. Um, so each, each particular wave, so we have two waves or two missions per day, one in the afternoon and one in the evening, they go pitch black. It's pretty dark up there. Um, We we would go through a vignette scenario that that didn't continue on to the next wave or the next day's mission so that each team that was planning for that particular scenario could focus solely on that particular one and didn't have to worry about any intelligence or feedback from the previous day's mission that was going to impact their ability to execute the mission.
0: Okay, yeah, that's that's interesting. I think that's, uh, um, yeah, you're probably getting better training value out of it uh, doing it that way.
1: Yeah that's right and and people come a long way so you know we had the joy of having uh, the German Eurofighters come all the way from Germany and participate in pitch black for the first time. Uh, They performed exceedingly well. You know, for them to come halfway around the world to operate in this activity, we need to make it beneficial, otherwise they won't come back. So we try to give them all those opportunities to upgrade their teams in this environment. Um, You know, the UK sent four typhoons over as well. Um, So, yeah, people have come a long way. We need to make it worth their while.
0: Yeah, you know, that's one of the awesome things that I've learned about Pitch Black this year, and I suspect in previous years as well, but particularly this year, it just seems like you got a lot of international participation from far away. Uh, you know, you mentioned Germany, uh, England, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, uh, did France participate as well?
1: Yeah, France did. They um, they brought their Rafale across, and they brought a tanker, and they had a... And two three five uh, light transport yeah. ac- uh, aircraft as well. So they have participated previously. They've had the Mirage out here before. Uh, so it's not the first time we've seen the French out here, uh, and they're great to work with.
0: Yeah, no, and that that's so cool because for their own training value, they're able to, you know, practice just deploying and the logistics mm-hmm. of all of that and going halfway around the world. You know, like you said for Germany, um, which is training value in itself before you even get to the exercise. Yeah,
1: it's, it's also pretty good. It you know, demonstrates the uh, responsive and agile nature of uh, combat air power. Uh, you can deploy in a heartbeat to the other side of the world and, and start having some material effect uh, in a very short period of time, which is different for other services
0: that travel at a slower rate. Right. We right join the air force right yeah exactly and and it, well one of the interesting aspects that that i've learned in researching this exercise was you mentioned it about the tankers there's a big big tanker element because it's key to fighters as you said they, they're not known for the legs that they've got and they burn fuel fast so uh tanker support is huge and now here you've got tankers from a ton of different air forces um, but I think they all ended up being the same type.
1: Uh, almost. So <laughs> KC-30 variants were the main ones. So, you know, the UK call there's the Voyager, or the MRTT from Korea, and um, the United States Marine Corps were over there KC-130 tankers oh, okay. um, as well. Uh, we had a lot of tanker support. So there were tanker crews getting airborne with a gut load of gas. Uh, they get up there and they couldn't. Offload it all to the fighter force because they, they didn't need it given the size of the fighting uh, windows that we had. Um, but you know it's good training for them. The integration, deconfliction, um, and coordination of that many assets in a um, in the airspace uh, is good training for everyone. Um, you know there was just not sufficient ramp space at Darwin to accommodate all the players for pitch black, which is why the aircraft that could, um, you know, for example, the Australian KC-30s were operating out of Ambly, traveling one way, 1,500 miles for the activity and then flying home again. Uh, so it's that's definitely some uh, flexibility there, uh, but they were getting some good training out of it too.
0: Right, right. I just had a call coming in while, while you said that, but for those that missed it, uh, <laughs> you were saying that that um, you didn't need some gas, uh, uh, If I if I read you correct.
1: It's generally the other problem. Generally we're uh, always crying out for more tanker support to feed the fight. Um, and that did not occur this time because of the generosity of all the participating nations that, you know, brought tankers along to, to participate in Pitch Black, which is, which is great for everyone involved.
0: Yeah, yeah, right on. And I know that there were logistic aircraft, obviously, that were bringing supplies for some of these other nations, like the A400M. It can do air-to-air refueling. Uh, do you know if it was employed in that role at all during this exercise?
1: No, it was not. It was... Uh for the logistic transport from A to B to get the team and their kit to location. that wasn't utilized as a tanker during the flow.
0: Right, right. Okay, cool. Um, the other thing that I found interesting was, well, as you mentioned, there have been more and more participants as the years have gone on. Uh, Germany, as you mentioned, came for the first time. But I also believe uh, Japan and South Korea were first-time participants.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was excellent to have those two nations come and join in as well. Uh, but, you know, Being within our near region, um, it's excellent to get the opportunity to operate with those teams. Yeah, So um, J- the Japanese uh, Self-Defence Force brought down their F-2, uh, which is uh, an indigenous build F-16, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the uh, Republic of Korea Air Force uh, brought down their F-16U, kf 16 u uh, and their MRTT as well, uh, and it was it was great to operate with uh, regional partners that are facing a similar strategic scenario, uh, and just understanding the nuances of how different fighter communities operate, and we're, we're, it's it provides us some reflection time to go, are we doing things right? Because they're doing it differently, it doesn't mean we're doing it right. Uh, so it gives it an opportunity to have a look at the way we conduct business, but not not only from an air combat tactical execution perspective, but also from a, uh, the technicians, the logistics support, uh, and how they coordinate their operations. Uh, it's, it's great for us, um, and hopefully it's some benefit to the visiting nations.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I, I also saw that India came with four Su-30 MKIs, uh, pretty neat aircraft, and a type that I suspect you don't see too often.
1: No, we had, uh, in 2018, uh, we had India come down with their flankers as well, which was fantastic. That was the first time that they had come out to Australia. So this was their second journey out here with their flankers. Uh, and yeah, they, were, they uh, they a mean jet and it was great to have the Indians on board. Uh, they are a very capable air force uh, and it was great to have them as part of the team.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a huge air force. I don't think most people really appreciate how big it is, but, um, but it's it's interesting to see that they are now going further afield to exercises, uh, which they traditionally have not done. You know, I, I know that uh, they have in the past been aligned with Russia, but that seems to be changing with a lot of the kit that they've got. Even though we're talking about flankers, um, you know, they have a lot of uh, a lot of American aircraft now, P8s and uh, Chinooks and Apaches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I think it's showing that there that there is a pivot happening and. I know they've been at red flag, and as you mentioned, they've been at pitch black now twice. So I think that's a good trend.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you know, they've been doing this for quite a few years. I mean, I recall many years ago the U.S. Air Force heading out to India to participate in activities, and so yeah, they've definitely been more open. there. I think their policy is non-alignment policy, which is fine, but. They're part of the construct uh, created out here in the Pacific uh, fairly recently at the Quad, uh, Australia, US, uh, Japan, and India. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there are some opportunities there to uh, ensure that we understand how we all operate so that if required, uh, hopefully not, if required to actually go into a conflict scenario, then we understand the teams that we're going to be going into harm's way with so that we can achieve best outcomes.
0: Right. You know, one thing that I didn't read or see much uh, uh, with, in regards to Pitch Black this year, and I'm not really sure why, uh, but that's why I'll ask you the question, is airborne early warning and control. Um Was there much of that uh, exercise? Because that's so fundamental to fighter operations. So, um, you know, I know that Australia has the E-7 Wedgetail, you know, one of the first adopters of that platform uh, from all intents, extremely capable. Um, But yeah, I didn't hear anything about that during the exercise. Yeah, so
1: we only had Two nations contribute to the airborne uh, early warning control, which was Australia with their E7, and the Singaporeans brought down their G550 um, to operate. Uh, so that was the only airborne stuff, and then that was backed up by uh, ground based fighter control uh, out of our uh, mobile control reporting unit that's uh, based out of the top end in Australia. Uh, But that actually provided a great opportunity for, you know, many of the nations that participated that, for example, might not have been able to uh, chew down the expense of sending very expensive capability uh, a long way to participate. They sent some uh, personnel with them, air battle managers or fighter controllers, uh, and they were actually able to sit inside the cabins on the ground in Australia at our control and reporting unit and actually control and contribute to the fight from those cabins uh, so our controllers got some good integration with our regional partners to observe and understand how they operate and uh, how, they, uh, how we can all operate to the same standards so that it's interchangeable. Should I be controlled by someone from Malaysia or someone from Australia? It's, it should be seamless to the individual in the cockpit.
0: Right, right. That's awesome. Um, you know, Mac, you mentioned that there were strike packages, uh, and obviously the you know the air superiority aspect to this. Um, were there any like from a ground perspective and also in the air? What type of targets were used? Like, were there any unmanned aerial targets uh, that Obviously, there was, as you mentioned, there were no live weapons on any aircraft, so nothing was shot down in reality. But, um, but did you have targets that you that you'd have to close up on, and how did that work?
1: Yeah. So, uh, two aspects to that, I guess, is there were adversary air threat and there was an adversary ground threat from the air side. uh, Each of the nations was asked to contribute to the adversary force for each of the waves to a certain component. So, for example, if a nation was bringing six aircraft down, the... You know, they would uh, contribute a portion of their force to um, contribute to the adversary force. So uh, we would have, and I think the standard uh, was a little bit lighter on at the night time, but during the daytime there were 50 blue players uh, and they were um, pitted against uh, around about 30 red participants. Uh, but they would be assigned to be an adversary for that particular wave. Uh, they would simulate then a um, an adversary air force that we had made up and generated based on uh, unclassified capabilities and information. Um, and then that's who the blue team would need to go up and fight against with to the best of their abilities. Um, so everyone would contribute to red. So there were actually live uh, red players out there. They were just simulating, shooting each other down hopefully more blue wins than losses. Uh, And then on the ground, there were uh, uh, notional targets on the ground that represented uh, tactical threats. There was just not an associated real threat on the ground for people to target. But there were things on the ground. So, for example, if there was a um, surface-to-air missile site that we were simulating on the ground, there would actually be something on the ground that the teams couldn't target. It might be a household or it might be a shed or something like that that they could um, simulate employing their weapons against, but noting that that's just internal mission systems to the jet, nothing real coming off the aircraft.
0: Right, okay. Hey folks, here's a message about our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Did you know that Cubic supports combat training by providing warfighters a common data model called SPEAR, and SPEAR stands for Simplified Planning, Execution, Analysis, and Reconstruction. SPEAR was envisioned, designed, and fielded by current and former warfighters, The software suite ingests data from multiple domains like air, land, sea, space, and cyber, and all environments like live, virtual, and constructive, regardless of how that data is captured, and it translates it into a common model. SPEAR is used to support mission planning, execution, and debrief, and it enables subjective data labeling and categorization throughout the mission cycle. The result of which is an enriched data file which can be used for learning management, readiness assessments, artificial intelligence, and machine learning advancement. The revolutionary SPEAR software allows warfighters to visualize operations throughout the mission training cycle or during combat operations, and that enables forces to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, The Spear Common Data Model enables real change. To learn more about it, please visit cubic.com. Now let's get back to our chat. And how do you track everything? Well, actually I have two questions here. Um, First, um, I appreciate that live virtual and constructive training is gaining more and more importance for obvious reasons you know you can inject synthetic to live and was there any of that with pitch black 2022 any lvc aspect
1: no there was not we've previously toyed with being able to utilize that um however given the number of participants this time around we did not have a requirement to because the airspace was full so you know we're talking there were Uh, approximately 80 aircraft up in the air for a single vol every wave. Um, You then start to throw uh, constructive inputs on top of that as well, and it becomes a very congested piece of airspace. So this time around, we didn't need to. Uh, I think we're still running into some limitations with the ability about how to integrate live and synthetic Mm -hmm. or constructive uh, entities to enable them to respond appropriately to uh, what's occurring at the time as opposed to a predetermined flight route or path.
0: Right, right. Well, certainly for Pitch Black, with all the assets that you guys had participating, um, yeah, I guess you didn't really need the LVC construct, but um, I suspected it'll be more and more important when it's just, you know, the RAF training amongst yourselves because numbers count, um, especially when trying to replicate a threat.
1: Yeah, that's right, and and I agree. It's it's uh, much needed. Uh, we need to get to a position where it is seamless, uh, and it should be um, unseen by pilots and uh, weapon system operators in the cockpit that the things a real thing or a constructed thing. Um, No one, in my understanding, around the globe is at that point yet where it is that seamless, Uh, and there are various technical barriers to get through to achieve that state, but I think it's, you know, like most things uh, around the globe, you've got to be uh, focused on uh, stretch objectives uh, to advance, and I think we're all starting to contribute more and more to that, and hopefully that will come to fruition in the not-too-distant future, but we're we're not quite there yet. Uh,
0: Interesting. So, as you said, 50 aircraft in a vol. Um, how do you do the pre-brief and you know mission brief uh, before you get going because um, I'm familiar with red flag you know you see all of these mass briefings and debriefings Uh, how is it done at pitch black Uh, because I'd love to kind of hear the actual nuts and bolts of how you actually plan these missions
1: yeah So the joy of having the majority of the participants in one location is you can do it in person. So, you know, if we're flying a mission on Tuesday afternoon, the team that's executing that mission will plan for it the day prior. So they'll get given their tasking the day prior. They will come up and work together as a team to come up with what they think is the optimum plan about how to get after the mission objective. They will then ensure that coordination, deconfliction planning has occurred. On the day of execution, all the residents and participants who are local will sit in a single room. Those that are dispersed, so not in the same location, are hooked up via a video conference. So for Pitch Black as example, we would have tankers in Amberley and we had uh, Marine F-35 Bravos in Tyndall. They would hook up via a video net. Where the mission commander would brief the entire blue package of what the mission was and how it was going to be coordinated for that particular mission set. Um, then, uh, post that uh, mission commander coordination brief, individual formations or packages would then disperse to their own locations and then they would conduct their individual formation briefs, uh, which got into a higher fidelity of detail about how they're actually going to go and execute the mission commander's plan Mm -hmm. and then they'll all step out and they'll uh, check in on the radio with each other and then uh, push off at the appropriate time for the fight uh, then the same happens in reverse so everyone gets back on the ground has a period of time where they're able to assess their own individual um, we call them tapes so the recording of the actual mission through their mission system they'll review that to ensure things like the weapons they dropped were valid and accurate and the missiles they shot were valid and timed out or didn't on the uh, adversary uh, they will take that information then and then they then we orchestrate uh, it's 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 a combined TISPI flow, so time, space, position information from each of the aircraft that are airborne, uh, otherwise known as an ACMI debrief. Mm-hmm. Um, that will get merged by Australia, uh, and the contractors that we have merge all that information so the mission commander can get up and do a shot validation prior to the main debrief, whereby the fight is replayed in quick time so that shots can be validated, uh, individuals can be removed from the fight in the playback and the influence and the lessons that can be drawn from that are then utilized during the mission commander's main blue debrief at the end of the mission uh, and then post that, individual formations go back and do any tidy up lessons or how they can improve on their next flow uh, is the whole process, how it works, which is you know very, very similar to the way the red flag works. Um, I guess the difference is that different locations where people are located, video networking uh, and the security architecture around how they're fighting uh, is just different. We definitely do not um, advertise that we are red flag equivalent. That's not what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to achieve a different outcome. If people wanted red flag, they need to go to North America.
0: Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, so obviously, deconfliction is, is a big thing. You know, when you have all of these aircraft, I think that's what you mentioned was the bulk of the first week when you're flying. Um, but you know, when we talk about that, there are strike packages, and you know, then there's obviously the air superiority side, we have simulated ground targets. Is there the desire to have pitch black evolve into something more? And by that, what I mean is um, operations are becoming more multi-domain and multi-domain stuff happens anyways. You know, there's satellite communications, uh, let alone imagery or any of that stuff. So do you foresee that pitch black might evolve moving forward to kind of include more multi-domains into the exercise?
1: Yeah, uh, without doubt that is true, uh, you, know, it, you know, Pitch Black is used an opportunity for us to uh, you know, stretch the current uh, capabilities that we have, uh, us like many of our partner nations around the globe are um, discovering and trying to get on top of uh, new effects I guess, uh, so those will naturally come into play, you know, for example in previous Pitch Black iterations we've had quite a heavy land component where the Army have been involved. That we integrated into strike or support missions, uh, you know, in, insertion of uh, friendly forces through tactical airlift into a location that needs to be protected from adversaries in order to them, for the army to establish themselves in location to achieve their objectives. You know, so we often flow around, and, and we, we, we're not always, we don't lock ourselves into always being an air combat-focused activity. Although, that is, you know basically going to be the, the backbone of which the activity is orchestrated around and there will be other components that are injected into it uh, but you know I go back to my, one of my earlier comments was the fact that you know a lot of the air combat forces in our region don't get a lot of opportunities to work in scenarios of this size and complexity so it provides them great benefit if we were to move the air combat element out of it then you know I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be real happy about that they they, they would lose all opportunities
0: of course, yeah. No, that, that's got to be the, the focus, uh, without doubt. But I guess to make it more uh, realistic, um, obviously you have to incorporate multiple domains. And I guess then the question becomes, how do the warfighters, the pilots, um, people on the ground, people on ships, wherever they may be, cyber folks... Um, you know, how do they better understand the kill chains and the systems that are affected, instead of just hitting a target or you know focused on their one little portion of of the pie? Um, you know, how do they get a bigger picture for for everybody involved?
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, the the integration of all the effects that are able to be uh, brought to bear uh, that where the real learning benefits into that. It is stretching people out uh, beyond their. Uh, I guess, platform expertise and to understand what... Um, parallel contributing effects can be brought to bear to achieve mission objectives, uh, and yeah, we're all in this together, so that's great. I guess it's it's you know we, it naturally evolves over time. We're doing things now that we didn't do in pitchback previously, just because, for example, the F-35 can do more stuff. So, you know, we we wouldn't dream of doing the broad range of uh, mission sets that we now undertake uh, previously. So it it naturally morphs into what the current defence paradigm is. Uh, There's definitely potential for it to expand uh, in the number of contributing uh, effects uh, in the future.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing we didn't speak about was unmanned systems. Um, Australia has uh, the Triton, um, but to my knowledge, they, they weren't part of the exercise.
1: No, they were not. But yeah, the the Triton, uh, not yet in service, so they weren't involved in the activity. Okay. Um, so yeah, those alone um, are potential for the future to be included. Um, you know, we run other activities around Australia where we include the the P8 intimately involved in the activities we're doing. So, you know, it's 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 a balance, I guess, between the complexity of which we're able to generate, noting that. Um, some of our close partner nations that we need to work closely with um, you know we we don't need to make it overly complicated for everyone involved, there are you know, certain limitations. If we want to get to the high-end integration of all those multi-domain effects, uh, then there are other avenues to be able to achieve that. <laughs> My main objective as the exercise director is to make sure that everyone went home to their families at the end of the exercise. So safety is paramount, and we need to make sure that's constrained so that we can all come back and learn from our experiences and do it again as opposed to uh, turn up to a funeral for one of our mates.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Safety is always first. So in that context, what were some of the lessons learned from pitch black you know you mentioned that the reports have been written they've been sent up the chain um what can you speak to about some of the experiences that you've had during pitch black 2022
1: yeah so the majority of uh you know we get we try to encourage feedback from all participant nations to see primarily What would you like to see different in the next iteration of Pitch Black to, you know, to make it more beneficial for you? So, as example, some of the nations came back to us and said, we really want you to jack up the threat to a higher level to make it um, more difficult to fight. Uh, other nations come back to us and say that we reckon the adversary forces were just pitched at the right level for their uh, expertise, so that we take all those things back together and we go, right, what, what do we determine is going to be um, the size and, and environment that we create for the next pitch black? Uh, there are multiple options. There might be split waves, there might be a fifth gen wave followed by a fourth gen wave, so that, you know, all of the participants can actually stretch themselves to the maximum limit um, to get the training benefit they need out of it. You know, apart from that, no- nothing happens without logistics as well, right? So there are a lot of uh, lessons to be learned from an integration uh, of logistics and moving things in and out of Australia. Uh, as you're aware, Australia is quite particular on our quarantine requirements. Uh, so how we articulate that and assist our partner nations to come in and out of Australia uh, smoothly, uh, they're all lessons that are best learned now in training than opposed to if we need them to come in here for the real shebang.
0: Right, right. Uh, okay, interesting. Um, it, you know, one thing I didn't ask you about is, and I don't know if Australia uses the same vernacular, but in the United States Air Force, there's a big emphasis on agile combat employment. And as it says, you know, being agile and being responsive and being unpredictable, um, does the Royal Australian Air Force, is it looking at future combat in the same way and needing to be agile? And the reason why I'm, I guess you always need to be agile, but I mean, in the, in the construct of, of ACE, like the US is doing, I'm, I'm wondering if you guys are exercising that and if that might actually be something that you integrate into a pitch black in future years
1: you were definitely uh, observing very closely what the U.S. Air Force are doing, specifically in our region. Um, We are starting to tinker in that area, uh, but uh, my perspective at this point in time is that that is a whole of defence effort to achieve uh, those outcomes. It's not simply just moving jets around different locations. The logistics trains, the command and control of dispersed forces, uh, the ability to have sufficient stockpiles of weapons to support a fight, you know, that, that, that... These are big changes that need to be incorporated. And I think the simple component is just moving jets at different locations. The difficult component is how do you support that to such an effort that you can actually have a positive effect out of it. Uh, Obviously, we're a lot smaller than the United States Air Force, even PACAF. So we, we have a slightly different problem set. But we are definitely um, undertaking some light footprint operations in our uh, domestically and we're looking at uh, regionally as well. just to understand the, some of the nuances and lessons of how you can do this uh, not only safely and effectively uh, but you know is is it going to be worth it in the end? Um, so it's definitely something we're keeping a close eye on.
0: Right on. Uh, so as we close out um, group Captain McCormick, um, if you were to say to me, hey, Jody, this is one of the things that I really enjoyed about Pitch Black this year or perhaps a particular flight that stood out to you, uh, sortie, Um, you know, for you personally and then also for you as the exercise director, uh, I think that'd be a cool way to close out this chat. <laughs>
1: J.D. but I think the biggest thing that I got out of it personally was the relationships we build with our friends uh, meeting some really smart individuals from different nations uh, is the highlight and the whole purpose of Pitch Black is to, to understand to get closer and build friendships with people so that we can have quick access into other services should we need it uh, from an exercise direct perspective I was just happy that there were no fatalities uh, everyone made it safely there was no close calls so I think professionally Everyone who participated in the activity um, should be proud of what they achieved, uh, and we didn't have to attend any funerals at the end of it. And I know that sounds a bit dark, uh, but that is always a concern when you're putting 80-plus aircraft into a piece of sky at the same time, all from a different background and understanding of what's important. Uh, I think for us to be able to coordinate that was a, a, quite a significant undertaking. Uh, this is the largest uh, fast jet um pitch black that we've flown so I think this is this just demonstrates the professionalism of uh, fighter forces around the globe um, and everyone
0: should be proud of that. Yeah absolutely it, it's a great way to end this discussion Mac I really appreciate your time you know uh, quite candidly you just made me think you know how was communications just because you know you've got lots of people like English is the the language that aviation is conducted in but um, you know there is still accents as you mentioned and uh, I guess you know that's why you brief and debrief properly, and so everyone remains safe. And so it's a wonderful thing that 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 happened.
1: Yeah, and those are going to be those are going to be live and current. Uh, should we? Uh be required to work together for real in the future so uh, it's not something you want to change you just want to learn to operate in that uh, environment which is you know one of the objectives of pitch black so i think that was a definite learning uh, positive for us all
0: right on okay uh, as we close i'm just going to ask for the next iteration of pitch black <laughs>
1: uh i think we're going to have uh, more people are interested uh, so, the potential for it to be even larger again is always current. Um, there's a significant undertaking in Australia to improve our facilities in the top end, so that should support uh, participation from North Nations. Uh, and particularly for you, I guess, Jodie, uh, I think the Canadians need to up their game and send some fighter participation down to pitch black in 2024.
0: Hey, I'm with you on that 100%, Mac. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody should show up there because it sounds like an amazing exercise. And uh, kudos to you and you, and your team, and, You know, everyone that came together. Uh, sounds like an amazing exercise. And I really, really appreciate the time that you've taken to share it with me and with our listeners.
1: Hey, Jody, pleasure talking to you. Um, and maybe give us a call in uh, 24.
0: Uh, you can count on it, Mac. Thank you so much. That, my friends, was Group Captain Matthew McCormick of the Royal Australian Air Force, and he was the Exercise Director of Exercise Pitch Black 2022. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on Go Bold, and we look forward to you joining us on another episode. Have a great day, everyone. The views and opinions
1: expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is "Parasail" by Silent Partner.